When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can catch new episodes every Thursday, so make sure you like and subscribe to get every episode. Now, as we head into the summer holidays, we're turning back time to the early 20th century to explore the world with a very well-heeled couple. Stephen and Virginia Courtauld lived at Eltham Palace in southeast London, but when they weren't in residence, which was often during the British winter, they could be found cruising the world in luxury on board ocean-going liners or on their very own private yacht. And it's their well-documented travels that provide a fascinating insight into the lifestyles of the 1930s wealthy elite and an era before commercial flights had gone mainstream. Taking a trip with us and the Courtaults is English Heritage's team leader for properties historians, Dr Andrew Han. Hello there. Well, thanks for coming on, Andrew, to talk about the Courtaults, an interesting couple, certainly a very rich couple. But uh, for context, what was life like for most families in Britain during the 1930s? Well, actually, I think life would have been quite hard for the majority of families in the 1930s. We're just in the midst of what's been known as the Great Depression. And this started in 1929 with the, the famous Wall Street crash, with the collapse of the stock markets. And then really for the early 1930s, you've got massive contraction of the economy globally. So international trade fell by 50%. And that's absolutely huge. And that led to a massive hit on company profits, falling wages, very high unemployment across the globe. And, you know, you you see pictures of people relying on soup kitchens. I mean, there were three and a half million people unemployed in the UK by the summer of 1932. And this particularly affects areas in the industrial areas of the country, so the North and Midlands. But even in the South and, and in London, you know, it's it's quite miserable in this period. And it's only really from the mid-1930s that we begin to start, see things starting to improve when there's, there's a boom in house building, when you get new industries like the motor car industry developing. And, and then we start to see a little bit of you know, light at the end of the tunnel. So it's a pretty hard time. The Courtaults, though, enjoyed quite a different lifestyle from the average Briton, didn't they? The Courtauld certainly did have a different lifestyle. As you said in the introduction, they were fabulously wealthy, and so they could lead really what would be described as a sort of leisured lifestyle where they devoted themselves to sort of cultural activities and philanthropy and lots of travel as well. So, you know, they're doing things like Stephen Courtauld. He's very, very keen mountaineer. He's like sponsoring Arctic exploration. He is also involved in filmmaking. He f- helps found the Ealing Studios and helps bankroll the Ealing Studios in London. 
And he's also trustee of the Royal Opera House and he founds uh, the Courtauld Gallery at the Fitzwilliam Museum. So it's very much sort of in terms of philanthropy and, and giving, but also getting involved in lots of cultural activities. And at the same time, there's lots of entertaining, flamboyant entertaining that we know about at Elton Palace, where they effectively keep open house and have lots of visitors sort of passing through all the time. And these are really famous people, including Queen Mary and the Duchess of York. So there's really is, you know, the high end socialising and lots and lots of leisurely activities. So if people who are not familiar with the Courtaulds and Elton Palace, can you explain then how they amassed their fortune? Well, Stephen Courtauld was very fortunate to be a member of the wealthy Courtauld textile family, and they had earned their money through producing textiles right through the 19th century. But particularly towards the end of the 19th century, they invented something called artificial silk or rayon, which was used particularly for the sort of black mourning cloth that a lot of women wore after the death of Prince Albert, you know, copying what Queen Victoria was wearing. And so this became a real sort of fashion item that was worn by many women. And so it made them a vast fortune. And Stephen Courtauld himself, he wasn't actually actively involved in running the company because he was the younger son of the, the owner, but he did own lots of shares, which made him fabulously wealthy. And Ginny herself, Virginia Courtauld, she was also from a wealthy background. She'd been born in Romania, but she was the child of a the youngest child of a prosperous shipping merchant. But she'd been educated in England and effectively been brought up as in the sort of English upper classes. Uh, and they met on holiday in Italy and got married in 1923. And that's bringing together two sort of wealthy people, particularly Stephen, with his his vast wealth from the Courtauld textile firm. And that enabled them to do all these cultural activities and, and philanthropy that they, they enjoyed doing during their married life. How would you compare this couple's wealth to that of famous millionaires or billionaires today? It's always a difficult thing, isn't it? Because we haven't got any figures to show exactly how wealthy the Courtauld's were. We can assume that they must have been multi-millionaires, even in the 1930s. And if you think that sort of £2 million in 1930 would equate to about £90 million in today's money, so you can see they're going to be probably, you know, several hundred million pounds they're going to have. And just to give some sort of context for this, they spent £107,000 on the building of Elton Palace, and that equates to about £5.5 million in today's money. And if, when you consider that they're also doing all this philanthropic activity, Stephen builds an ice rink called the London Ice Club for a birthday present for Virginia one year, which is built in, in Westminster in a really sort of lavish Art Deco style. They also are investing in Ealing Studios and in Arctic exploration and all those sort of things. So there's, they're clearly spending a lot of money. And when Stephen dies in 1967, he left in his will £618,000 in 1967, and that's still equivalent to £11 million today. So even in old age, he was still a very wealthy man. And apart from Elton Palace, how many properties did they have in their portfolio? Well, it's, it's interesting because they, they didn't have a whole range of different properties they lived in at any one time. And in fact, Elton was leased from the Crown Estates. They didn't actually own Elton. Before Elton, they lived in a townhouse, London townhouse, called 47 Grosvenor Square. And I'm not sure if they actually own that. I assume they probably leased that as well. After Elton, they moved to a state called McCairn in the Scottish Highlands, which, again, may well have been leased. And then they bought a house out in southern Rhodesia, where they lived in their old age. So they didn't really sort of invest lots of money into property. I think they more sort of put their money into sort of their philanthropic and good deeds rather than owning lots of houses. Interesting that uh, they were sort of 
almost renting Elton Palace. Yes, effectively they were. It was a 99-year lease and they obviously built the house on the site, but they never actually physically owned it, yes. Well, that's at least something that uh, some listeners can identify with. Let's talk about their globetrotting then and the cost of being a travelling courtauld. So how did international travel in the early 20th century compare to today? Well, if you think of the early 20th century as really being the golden era of the luxury cruise liner market, it's the main means of intercontinental travel at this point because there's no real long-distance air routes until the 1950s. So during the early 20th century, you've got a number of cruise liner firms really competing for who can produce the biggest, fastest and more luxurious ships. And the two main companies operating in Britain are the White Star Line and the Cunard Line, and they're battling it out with competitors in Germany and France. And they're constantly trying to build bigger and better ships. So the Cunard Line builds the RMS Lusitania and the Mauritania in 1907. And these both win the blue ribbon for the fastest Atlantic crossing. And in response, the White Star Line commissions three liners from the Olympic class. And that includes, of course, the ill-fated Titanic, who sank on her maiden voyage in 1912. So you've got these massively extravagant and very, very large cruise liners that have been built all through the early 20th century. After the First World War, the building of liners starts up again and you get they become even more luxurious. And I think probably the zenith of that is the Queen Mary, which was launched in 1934 and has a maiden voyage in 1936. And this has an extremely lavish Art Deco interior, which features things like indoor swimming pools, beauty salons, libraries, a music studio, lecture halls. They've got telephone connections to anywhere in the world from the liner. And some of the style of this line is actually thought to have inspired some of the interiors at Elton Palace. So you can sort of see this crossover between the luxury interiors of country houses and also the luxury interiors of these huge liners. Yes, and it's worth saying, I think, that the Queen Mary is currently moored and has been for quite a while at Long Beach, California in the United States. So any of our international listeners, particularly those in North America, should be familiar with that. And I think it's also worth saying that it's reputedly haunted Oh, right. Interesting. (laughs) But um, that's one for another podcast. How did the Courtaulds do most of their travel then? I presume it's by ship at this stage. They did indeed. They were basically crisscrossing the globe by ocean liner throughout the 1920s and 30s. And we can pick up on some of this because the immigration and emigration records have survived. And so you can pick up where they're traveling and, and when. So for instance, we got references in July 1929 for them traveling over to Quebec in Canada aboard a Canadian Pacific ship called the Empress of Scotland. And on board, you've got Stephen and Ginny, but Ginny's got her lady's maid with her, Lillian Crome. So you get this idea that you're travelling with some of your servants. And they return from this journey in late September. So they've gone out to to the Americas in July. They come back in September, but this time travelling from New York to Plymouth on the Mauritania, which I mentioned earlier, the holder of the Blue Ribbon for over 20 years. And so you get this idea, this sort of crisscrossing of the Atlantic, but also going elsewhere as well. In 1932, they travel out to Madeira on a cruise liner and then back again. And in the late 1930s, they seem to go on these more ambitious extended winter breaks where they take in a different continent each year. So over the winter of 1936 to 37, they're travelling the length of Africa from Alexandria to Cape Town. That's partly through travelling over land, also travelling along the Suez Canal, and also taking a few short flights by aeroplane to different places within Africa. And they finally leave from Cape Town 
towards the end of their trip back to Southampton on a ship called the Dunatar Castle, which was a sort of mail packet ship, slightly less luxurious than some of the liners, but still, you know, a pleasant ship to be travelling on back to Southampton. So they're doing all these very, very sort of extensive touring around the around the world, pretty much every year during the nineteen late nineteen twenties and early nineteen thirties. You described some differences there between some of the ships that they were travelling on. So what levels of luxury did these ocean-going liners have? Uh, How did that also compare to ordinary people who were the less wealthy passengers who were travelling? Well, by the early 20th century, most liners had three different classes of passengers on board. So you had first class, which was where the wealthier visitors would go. And they had, you know, a luxury cabin where you might have a a bedroom, but also a dressing room and lots of luxury furnishings in your cabin and lots of space. And then you had second class, which was slightly less luxurious and would be mainly for sort of middle class passengers. And then you'd have third class, or what was sometimes known as steerage class, which was for the poorest passengers. And these were possibly people who were emigrating, say, over to America to start a new life. And they would often have to travel in sort of communal dormitories rather than individual cabins. And they would sometimes even have to bring their own bed sheets and bed linen and food with them rather than being served in uh, restaurants, although that became less common as the, uh, the 20th century progressed. And of course, the different classes of passengers would have different restaurants, different lounges, different bars and, and, and places where they could stay. Uh, for instance, on the, uh, the Queen Mary, you had the first class dining room was a huge grand salon, which spanned three stories in height. It was a really cavernous space. They also had choices of things such as the Veranda Grill, which was an exclusive restaurant for 80 people, which then converted into a a nightclub called the Starlight Club at night. So there's really sort of quite exotic locations. And another place called the Observation Bar, which was a sort of lounge with wide ocean views. So first class passengers were really well catered for and had every luxury thrown in for them. Were the different echelons of society allowed to mix on the deck? Or did people have to separate in in those days? I think there was a lot of separation, certainly where people were spending their time, like the locations for different activities they were doing, you know, the bars and the restaurants and things. Where they may have mixed is out on deck, when they were promenading on deck. I mean, there were probably sort of certain areas that were set aside by the wealthier visitors, um, you know, maybe open air swimming pools and this sort of thing. But there was definitely, you know, you on deck everyone could take the air and go out and sort of walk around on deck so that's probably the area where first and second and third class passengers might have mingled more although there were different deck levels so again you could probably avoid the hoi polloi if you wanted to by staying on the sort of upper decks and the sort of grander promenades right okay i only ask that because obviously many people will be familiar with the film titanic with kate winslet and uh Leonardo DiCaprio and famously they are socialising on deck aren't they which is unusual with him being in the different class from her yes I mean I guess there's a little bit of artistic license in the in yeah. the film but still I think that I do agree but it probably was possible for people to mingle a little bit out on deck apart from the ocean liners I understand the Courtaulds also had their own vessel their own yacht what can you tell us about that Yes, well, as well as travelling the the world on ocean liners, the Courtauld's did like cruising independently in their own yacht. And the first vessel that they owned was a a steam schooner called the Yoon Mara. And this was one they'd inherited from Stephen's elder brother, William Courtauld. And they sailed around that in the early to mid-1920s. 
But then in the late 1920s, Stephen started working with his brother-in-law, Captain Wilfred Doman, and some designers in Glasgow on a new motor yacht, which was going to be called the Virginia after Virginia Courtauld. The idea was that it would combine the graceful designs of a steam yacht with the power of a motor yacht with a twin-screw diesel engine. So it was going to be a really sort of fast and uh, luxurious vessel. And she was built at the Dalmuir Yard of William Beardmore and Co. in the Upper Clyde and launched in 1930, in June of 1930. And she's 210 feet, that's 64 metres long, and nine metres in the beam, so in the width, and weighs an impressive 712 tonnes. So it's a really large vessel. And the interior was very luxurious. It was decorated in Art Deco style by the Marchese Peter Malacrida, who would later go on to design some of the interiors at Elton Palace. And she could accommodate a crew of 30, plus the courtolds and up to six guests. So you had more crew on board than you did have passengers. Of course. <laughs> well, you can if you're, if you're that wealthy. Yeah, yes. for every whim. <laughs> Amazing. How many years did the Courtaulds do all this then? How many years did they dedicate to their globetrotting? Well, it's really sort of during the 1930s. They go travelling virtually every year, right up until 1939, just before the outbreak of World War II. And it's usually during the winter months when the weather in Britain is, is cold and miserable and they want to get out somewhere warmer. Sometimes, of course, they travel on ocean liners, but most of the times it's on their yacht, the Virginia. So what countries did the Courtaulds visit? Well, it's almost a case of saying which countries did they not visit. I mean, just to give some examples, during the summer of 1933, they went on a cruise around the Mediterranean. This is a summer cruise in this case, on the Virginia, with a party of friends. And they'd stop off at lots of different places for sightseeing as they go around. So they start in Brindisi in southern Italy. Then they cross over towards Corfu. They go round through the um, Gulf of Corinth, stop off at Delphi in Corinth. Then they go through the Corinth Canal to Athens, cross the Aegean Sea, stopping off at lots of the islands. And then they make it back through the Corinth Canal, stop off at Kefalonia, and then they go via Sicily before finally reaching Barcelona at the end of July. So yeah, that's the idea of just one of their tours in 1933. Then in 1934, they go around the Baltic in the spring and early summer, stopping off at places like Copenhagen, Malmo, Stockholm, Helsinki and Konigsberg, which is now Kaliningrad, and then Danzig, which is now Gdansk, amongst other places. The following year, they stay closer to home. They do a tour around the coast of Britain during the summer. And we got photographs that show them stopping off around Land's End, also Corfe Castle in Dorset, got them picnicking in the Scottish Highlands and also watching a naval review in the Solent. So you get this idea of them taking a particular area that they want to do a cruise and just sort of doing a different one every summer or, or winter, depending on the uh, the season. It's all right, isn't it? It's, it's an all right life. Um, it is, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> what was the most adventurous expedition? Well, I think probably... One of their most ambitious expeditions on the Virginia certainly was their three-month cruise around the South China Sea, uh, which they did in the winter of 1937-38. And during this, they visited Malaya, the East Indies, that's Indonesia, and also Thailand, which was then Siam, Cambodia, Vietnam. It was a round trip of about 21,632 miles, quite a long journey. So what they do is they fly off to Ceylon, that's Sri Lanka now, in November and then they meet up with the Virginia which has already been sailed out there by the crew and they then get on board for their trip around the South China Sea with a group of friends stopping off at each of the islands where they go a bit of touring round collect a few uh, orchids for Stephen and then 
they travel back on the Virginia all the way as far as Portofino in northern Italy, and then they get off the ship then, travel back over land while the yacht travels back up to Southampton, and they end up getting back to London just about the same time that the yacht is uh, docking in Southampton. So yeah, quite a, and I think it's March, early March, by the, or no, early April, sorry, by the time they get back. So it's a long tour. Remarkable. The one trip you mentioned there, 21,632 miles. So that's obviously just one season of touring. Yes. Can, can we possibly hazard a guess at how many tens of thousands or... I think it must be hundreds of thousands if you, if we're if we're adding them all up over the mm. the, the sequence. It, it must be more than a hundred thousand miles over their various trips. It must be, and that's just the trips they did on the Virginia. If you're counting all the cruising they did as well, it must be hundreds of thousands. So they've circumnavigated the world effectively in miles, probably a few times during their lifetime. They certainly have, yes. Obviously, people who know their history will know that uh, the 1930s is a time of rising tensions and war doesn't seem very far away. How did the arrival of the Second World War affect the Courtaulds' international travel plans, just in terms of being able to leave the United Kingdom? Well, over the winter of 1938-39, to the Courtaulds have been on one of their more adventurous tours to Central and South America, and they'd only got back to Britain in April of 1939. So they were quite lucky in a way that you know war breaks out in September, and then this really does bring an abrupt halt to their globe trotting because overseas travel is pretty much curtailed, and the Courtauld's, like most other Britons, were turning their attention to what they could do for the war effort. So it completely changes their sort of carefree globe trotting lifestyle. In terms of what they could do for the war effort, I can imagine that the Navy might have had an eye on their private yachts, the Virginia. So did something happen to that? Yes, it did. And basically, as soon as war broke out, the Virginia was requisitioned by the Admiralty. And like many other private yachts, motor yachts, it was put to work on anti-submarine patrol duty after a refit. And so it was painted in camouflage paint and it had a gun mounted on the deck. And it looks really, when you see pictures of it, it looks very different from the luxury yacht that the Courtaulds had used only a year, a year or so earlier. Did the war encourage the Courtaulds to move away from Elton Palace? Uh, I can imagine that uh, being in southeast London as the property is, that it might have been at risk of bombing. Well, the Courtaulds remained at Elton for much of the war, actually. In fact, they carried on their sort of hosting of house guests and they had numerous people staying with them during the early years of the war. So, for instance, people like Rab Butler, the education minister in the wartime government, spent a lot of weeks and months living with them, as did George Courtauld, who was Stephen's cousin and was the head of personnel at the Special Operations Executive, the wartime organisation parachuting secret agents into occupied Europe. So, in some ways, Elton was still a very busy place with lots of people living there. And Stephen himself, he became an ARP warden. That's a sort of um, a fire watch warden. Whilst Ginny became involved with the as a local organiser for the Women's Voluntary Service. So they really got involved in the local community activities around the Eltham area. And indeed, the Great Hall was indeed damaged by an incendiary bomb in September 1940 during the Blitz. You know, there's references to Stephen climbing upon the roof and helping the firefighters to put out the flames. But then the war did begin to take its toll. And by 1944, they decided that when they started getting the doodle bugs coming over, they decided enough was enough. And so they moved away from Eltham, first of all, up to the Scottish Highlands to a, an estate called McCann. And then later in 1951, they moved from there because Ginny was finding it too cold up in the Scottish Highlands. They moved to La Rochelle in southern Rhodesia. 
For people who aren't familiar with World War II period, Andrew, can you describe what a doodlebug is? It was the V1 flying bomb, yes, which the, the Germans were launching from northern France across the Channel into London. They came over and you could hear sort of like a throaty engine and then it would stop. And when it stopped, you knew they were about to drop and that was when you needed to take cover. Basically, all the German bombers and the doodlebugs were all, their flight path took them almost directly over Eltham. So you can imagine they felt they were in Bomb Alley and the, the local area did suffer a large number of, of hits from all these uh, bombers heading towards the East End docks and so forth. Mm. Nevertheless, there were plenty of trips that the Courtaulds, I suppose, could look back on during the World War period, the Second World War. And with their house guests, I suppose, they might have been able to share some of their pictures and um, maybe even cinefilm. What can you tell us about the uh, documentary evidence that they now leave for us? Well, we're very lucky indeed that the Courtaulds, one of the things they definitely did was to document their travels. Uh, on their tours around Europe in the early 1930s, they kept a photograph album for each tour and recording life on board ship, but also all the places that they visited along the route. So it's actually possible, even when there isn't a, an itinerary for the tour, just by looking at the sequence of photographs in the album, you can sort of work out where they must have travelled from. And that's what I did with the uh, the Scandinavian tour, because there's no uh, actual record of, of where they travel, but you can pick it out from the photographs. And Stephen, we know, is a very keen photographer. He had his own photographic dark room installed in the basement at Elton Palace. So, you know, this is something they enjoyed doing. But then for their more adventurous tours, when they went round whole continents in the later 1930s, they kept more sort of extensive scrapbooks in which they pasted not only photographs, but also cruise liner tickets, airline tickets, other ephemera that they picked up along the route from the different places they travelled to. And they also took cinefilm as well, the travels. And when they got home, this was shown both to visitors at Elton Palace, but also to the more general public at the Royal Geographical Society. They liked to sort of do sort of video presentations there to talk about the different parts of the world they visited. And we got one particular reference to a film being shown in the Italian drawing room at Eltham, a reference in the diary of politician Leo Amory when he visited the Courtauld's in July in 1938. And he says that after dinner, they showed us their last film with the wonderful, colourful pictures of Bali, which seems in its way a simple little paradise, and of the horrible Komodo dragon, whose flickering bright yellow tongue might well explain the legend of dragons spitting fire. And I think it's you know, a fascinating picture of how these guests must have been astounded by these images from far across in the in Southeast Asia or in Africa, whatever, places that most of them have probably never never seen or visited in the area before widespread wildlife documentaries and so forth. Yes, I suppose that's something that's quite hard to understand for us listening now, isn't it? And was that colour film, do you think? It was, yes, yeah. And some of the colour film still survives. We've incorporated elements into the interpretation at uh, at Eltham. So it's it's a fascinating image of, you know, like 1930s travel. You know, a very early example, I would imagine, of, of coloured cine film being used by a private individual rather than by a film company. Yes, and you'd expect someone who's got that money to get the highest possible quality film and equipment and I suppose colour is what you want if you're documenting these things. Amazing. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, Stephen was involved with uh, Ealing Studios, so he'll be have access to all the latest technology in terms of filmmaking, yes. All the right connections, yes. Did they like to collect souvenirs on their travels? Well, that's one thing that's quite interesting. The Courtauld's don't seem to be avid collectors during their trips. We don't have records of large numbers of souvenirs that they brought home. I mean, you know, it may well be, but we just don't have access to them and that they actually did. But 
certainly I'm not aware of them, not in the way that, you know, the grand tourists of the 18th and early 19th century would bring back lots of marble busts and things with them from their travels. We don't get that sort of thing happening. But what we do know is that Stephen was mad keen on orchids. And certainly during their cruise around Southeast Asia, he collected specimens on each of the islands they visited and then stored them on board on the deck of the Virginia. And we know this because he wrote a letter to his friend, the assistant director of Kew Gardens, John Gilmore, describing what he'd found. He says, we've collected a few orchids from the islands of Java, Bali, Komodo, Flores, Alor and Banda, and expect to get some more at Celebes and Malaya. And then he says, I'm going to send these on to Kew when I get back to England. And when they were examined, it turned out that some of them were completely undocumented species. So, you know, in a way, Stephen is involved in documenting our, the global natural history. Yeah, it's a really, uh, you know, him playing an important role in that. Mm, yes, I think that's something that's worth underlining, isn't it, really? It's not It's not just a total playboy lifestyle, is it? He's got money to spend, but he's also got money to spend on things that uh, he wants to see improved. Well, very much so. I mean, Stephen's a very serious character. He's very much sort of an intellectual. And, you know, the topics that he got interested in, whether that be orchids or whether that be, you know, understanding the history of the Courtauld family or documenting the sort of history of Elton Palace. He did really threw himself into all those things. For many of us, of course, travel by international private yachts is something that we can only really dream about. But the great thing is that you can live the Courtauld's lifestyle if you visit Elton Palace and sort of live vicariously through them. Can visitors spot any clues to their globetrotting lifestyle at the property? They can indeed. I mean, the most obvious one, of course, is the map room, which is adjacent to Ginny's boudoir. And this was where we discovered, hidden under layers of paint and, and paper, a series of pasted up maps, which I think there was 11 in total, of different parts of the world. And around these, there's a sort of marginal decoration, which has been skillfully painted, showing images of animals and, and scenes that complement the maps. So, you know, you have a camel next to the map of Egypt and so forth. And we think perhaps these were used as a sort of memento of the visits they've been on. You don't, we don't have the actual visit routes marked on or anything like that, but you get an impression that they're sort of recording things that they may have seen on their travels because the maps seem to link very closely with the places that we know that they visited. So there's Southeast Asia, there's Africa, there's South America, so forth. So that's one thing. Also, if you look around, there are some other little sort of tantalising glimpses. There's a painting on the landing of their first yacht, the Umara, and also there's a model of uh, the Virginia, their motor yacht, in a glass case on the shelf in, in the library, in Stephen's library. So there's, a, there's one or two little uh, examples there. You can sort of see references to their travels. And just if you think about the actual building itself, the sleek lines of the interiors of the entrance hall and Virginia's bedroom, where they're, they're very reminiscent of the uh, very sort of Art Deco interiors of the 1930s liners like the Queen Mary. And the porthole openings on the staircase up to the first floor have a very sort of nautical feel to them, don't they? Yes, I think that's something that's really influenced them, hasn't it? But um, which rooms or rooms at Elton Palace do you think represent the Courtauld's passion for travelling? I think it's really got to be the entrance hall and the and the staircase, as I say, with the clean lines, the wooden marquetry and the and the circular openings, the portals and the stairways. It really does resemble a, an ocean liner and it's opulence. I mean, if you look at some of the interiors of some of these ocean liners, they are incredibly opulent and they do use a lot of marquetry, a lot of wooden panelled interiors, just like you see at Eltham. So, yeah, that's probably where I'd see the greater connection. And speaking of their connection with Elton Palace, how long does that last until before they move abroad? 
as I said earlier, they leave Eltham in 1944 and head up to the Scottish Highlands to McCann. This is a, a, a sort of Scottish Highland estate where they breed Highland cattle and you know set up a you know gardens just as they'd had it down at Eltham and and live a sort of for a few years a sort of the lifestyle of a Scottish laird sort of thing. But then Ginny finds the weather too cold up there, and so they decide to relocate to Southern Rhodesia, an area that they'd passed through on their journey through Africa in 1936-7. And they end up plumping for an area, the Mbiza Valley, which is a sort of upland area towards the east of southern Rhodesia, close to the border with Mozambique. And they build a new house there called La Rochelle, which is in the style of a French chateau. And they create this wonderful sort of tropical gardens around it, you know, sort of really nice setting with an outdoor swimming pool and everything, just really creating another really luxurious place to live. And they're doing all this when Stephen is in his well, I guess late 60s, they're not young people when they're doing this. So it's it's really quite impressive. But they've, having built one house at Eltham, they then build yet another out in Africa. Yes, and they also take their house building and almost combine it with their globetrotting in a way. But by this stage, they're slowing down and uh, they're still travelling, but they're sort of travelling to live and stay. Yes. Uh, more permanently, in a way. So they go from Scotland to Zimbabwe, effectively. But uh, almost living in France with this um, French-style chateau. Exactly, yeah. I mean, they have their own private aeroplane while they're out in Africa, so they're able to sort of travel around Africa, and they actually have a sort of um, a villa also on the coast, coast of one of the lakes in uh, Malawi as well. So they're, they're still travelling around southern Africa whilst, whilst they're there. But it's, yeah, it's a slightly less globe-trotting than they were previously. But still a very nice retirement, I suppose you <laughs> Very much say. so, yes. One that we could all love to aspire to. What happened to their beloved yacht then, after 1945? Well, sadly, uh, the Virginia was returned to the Courtaulds in a pretty poor state of repair after its wartime service in 1945. And so they decided, because they were no longer in the UK and their sort of globe-trotting days were probably over, that they would sell the yacht. And so she was sold three years later, 1948, to a newspaper baron called Viscount Camrose. And he refits the yacht, brings it back up to you know luxury status, and spends 10 years cruising extensively around in the form of Virginia around the, the globe. And it continues to attract a good deal of admiration from visitors and from the general public. But then the Virginia actually then, by chance, after 10 years of being owned by Viscount Camrose, it ends up back in Africa like the Courtaulds. Because in 1957, it was sold to the president of Liberia, William Tubman, for use as his presidential yacht. And it was kept in service there as a presidential yacht right up until the late 1960s. But then it was sold in 1971 when there was a sort of anti-corruption campaign in Liberia and it was seen as a sort of uh, luxury item that should be disposed of. And it ended its days as a, a floating casino in neighbouring Sierra Leone, but was unfortunately heavily damaged by fire, I think, in the 1980s. But as recently as 2020, it was reported that the wreck was still in existence and, you know, there's a possibility it could be rebuilt if someone had lots of money and, and time to do so. <laughs> so there needs to be a modern day court old couple to come in and save it and restore it and perhaps even use it again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if, you know, if English Heritage had a bottomless pit of money, it would be a, a really nice thing to do, wouldn't it? It's to bring the uh, Virginia back to the UK and, and rebuild it. I just don't know how badly damaged it is, though, sadly. No, it'd be great to be a, a garden feature, wouldn't it? <laughs> if you could find the space. Well, um, thank you very much for talking us through it, Andrew. Um, the lifestyles of the rich, philanthropic and famous and well-heeled and well-travelled Stephen and Virginia Courtauld. 
it's a really fascinating story and of course something that um, visitors can explore in plenty more detail through a visit to Elton Palace and all its wonderful Art Deco interiors. They can indeed, yes. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be painting further pictures for you as we talk about the life of portrait artist Sir Joshua Reynolds. He was a really prolific painter. He could complete as many as 100 paintings in a year at the height of his career. So there are about 2,000 known paintings today. Thanks for listening. See you next time.